Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. You don't have to spend too much time looking around the world to realize you better have a nice, strong Christian worldview in order to navigate your way through life. And I'm so glad that we're going to continue our series with David Wheaton on the formation of a Christian worldview and embracing one. We're in part uh, part six of our 12-part series on embracing a Christian worldview. David is the host of the Christian worldview, and I always recommend you go listen to uh, his show and you can check out the podcast and his writing and everything else at his website, thechristianworldview.org or .com. David, I don't know why I can't figure that out. Which one is it? You know what? You can go to either one. They all go to the same place, <laughs> but it is .org. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Anyway, David, welcome back to the show. Always great to have you on, and I'm looking forward to getting into uh, our series on embracing a Christian worldview. Maybe we can do a little, um, a little, some important points from the last time we had you on. Yeah, we're coming up on halfway through this 12-part series over this year, Bill, so today's part six. But in the last couple parts, we've gone over the fundamentals of a Christian worldview. And there were, there was four fundamentals that that hold up. They're like pillars that come off the foundation. If the foundation of a Christian worldview is that God exists and that he has spoken to us uh, in his word uh, then the, the the pillars, like the framework that comes up, like you're building a house from that foundation, is that four things, that that God created everything. He created perfection in the beginning. He established his will and his ways, and you read that right in the early chapters of Genesis. And the second fundamental is that man corrupted it, uh, that he rebelled against God, and it wreaked corruption on the world, and, and there was a death, and there was an alienation from God, and we see that all around us today. And the third fundamental of a Christian worldview is that redemption, that God is graciously providing one way of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. And the fourth fundamental of a Christian worldview is restoration, that God someday in the future will reward the righteous, punish the rebels, and create a new heavens and a new earth. So we, we got into that fourth fundamental last time, but just to back up to the second and third ones, the corruption and redemption fundamentals, you know, we live in the tension of those two fundamentals today. Mm-hmm. There is corruption all around us, and by the way, inside of us because of our sin. And yet at the same time, in the midst of all this corruption, God is graciously and patient and compassionate. He's redeeming some out of this corruption. And this is, as you say, history, his story. This is the story of the Bible, the tension between these these two fundamentals, corrupt, corruption and redemption. Uh, the Bible tells the, the story. There's one one long book with a with a story, one main theme about who God is, of course, but how man's sin has corrupted God's perfect creation and how God provides redemption through his son. So the whole Old Testament looks forward to the coming of this Redeemer, uh, tells the story of the Jews through whom through whom this Redeemer would come, and then foreshadows through the sacrificial system what this Redeemer would do. He'd make a sacrifice in our behalf. In the New Testament, this Redeemer is born of a virgin so as to be without sin. He lives a sinless life. 
He performs miracles to verify who he is as deity. He preaches forgiveness of sin through himself, and he offers himself on the cross in our place to satisfy God's justice and wrath over our sin. He rises victoriously from the grave. He ascends to heaven, and he promises to return. That, that's really the main theme of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so then just lastly, the last session we talked about, it moves on from, well, what's going to happen in the future? Well, that's the restoration part. And, and to the humanist worldview or non-Christian worldview, the future is about moving towards some utopian world where all people unite together and, and are equal in global community. That's I think we went over the song Imagine by John Lennon. Read the lyrics to that song. That's right. exactly Imagine a world where there's no religion and you know everyone lives in harmony and so forth. But that's not what that's not what God says the world where the world is going. The reality of the future is that God is going to restore all things. Read Revelation chapter one, where we see this this image that John sees of this new heavens and new earth being recreated, because the first heaven and new new earth have been or old earth have been destroyed. And so th- this is what is going to happen in the future. There will be he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So th- those are the fundamentals of a Christian worldview. I think just explain so much of the world that you know God created us. There's a purpose for it while we're here. It explains what the problem has gone on in the world, the corruption it explains the solution through Jesus Christ, and it also explains that there's going to be justice and there's hope for the future that God will restore all things. David Wheaton is my guest, and we're continuing our study and embracing a Christian worldview. And David, as you laid that out, uh, talking about the fundamentals of a Christian worldview, you did a, a masterful job of presenting the gospel as you were talking about the Christian worldview. Uh, so thank you for doing that as well. You're welcome. So, David, what what are the great truths to these uh, four fundamentals of a Christian worldview? Explain. Well, listeners probably figured it out. It, it, the, these these four fundamentals, these tenets of a Christian worldview, explain what the gospel is. Uh, it, the gospel is literally means the good news, and because it answers what the bad news is. And the question is this: How can I, a sinner deserving judgment because I've sinned against a holy God, my Creator, the King of the Universe? How can I be forgiven by him? How can I be made right with him? And so after I die, I can spend eternity with him. That is the question. And, you know, Bill, I I grew up in a Christian home, but it wasn't until I was in my early 20s and wrestling with an unrelenting conflict inside of me because I had been raised in a Christian home, but I was going the wrong way. And God, there, there there was a conflict inside of me because I knew that I was living my life in a way that dishonored God. And it was in my early 20s, actually after a time of career success in my life, that I found very empty, that this conflict was still raging on, even when I was, quote, doing well in life, that I began to read the Bible for the first time on a regular basis. And I began to understand these four fundamentals that we've been talking about, that God created me, okay, not primarily at the time I was a professional tennis player. That wasn't my primary purpose, was just to win tennis tournaments, but to be in a relationship with God, to know him and to live for his glory, to serve him. But I wasn't doing that. And that's what I learned second. The second fundamental is that the corruption in my life was because I was practicing sin and I deserved God's judgment. But then point three, the third fundamental is that God was still offering me redemption to be saved from my sin through Christ's substitutionary death for me on the cross. And that the fourth fundamental, how I could be restored, was that 
receiving this by faith, by, by God's grace through faith, what he did for me, that I would be forgiven and restored and have the promise of eternal life. So you can see how those those four fundamentals of the Christian worldview also explain the gospel and how we could become right with God. And this isn't a, an intellectual, purely an intellectual pursuit that we understand you know, who Jesus is, we understand the Christian worldview. No, this is a surrendering, a submission of the will to Christ as Savior and Lord. It's not about our works, going to church, you know, being baptized, taking communion. That doesn't save us. Uh, Jesus said the first thing he said in ministry is repent and believe in this gospel. And so we're saved by repenting of our sin and trusting fully in the gospel, the good news that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is God's one means of saving us. Mm. I so appreciate, David, your testimony. I I never get tired of hearing about someone who thinks they're leading a life uh, and they're living in in sin. They think they're living one life, but they're they're living apart from God, and then God gets a hold of them just the way God got a hold of you and revealed that truth, and you surrendered, and you you said, I'm, I'm, I'm committing my life in a new way. And it's not about uh, religious activities. It's about uh, heart surrender. Yes, it, it absolutely is. That's the one issue that gets confused so much that makes the difference between true biblical Christianity is that we aren't saved by our own works, by trusting in our own works, but by the we're by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That, that's a, it's a heaven and hell difference in what you believe, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, trusting in your own works, being self-righteous, rather than trusting only in Christ's righteousness. So true. David Wheaton is my guest. David, what are our influences and how, how are they key in the formation of our worldview? Yeah, well, this is getting into the the third part now of this whole series. Uh, We've gone from a foundation of a Christian worldview to the fundamentals, which we just discussed, to now is, you know, how do you form? How does the formation take place? How do you you develop a Christian worldview? We've talked about some information now, but how do you get the formation? And, and, And your question is a good one, because I think one of the most important questions you can ask someone is, who or what? have been the key influences in your life. Because when you find out who or what those influences are, you're going to have a much better understanding of how someone thinks and how they're going to live. So uh, key influences are central to the formation of one's worldview, whether it's a Christian worldview or not. So if I asked you, Bill, you know, the same question, who or what have been the key influences in your life? You would probably say your, your parents, maybe a coach, teacher, some friends, maybe a pastor you've been under. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the book. Maybe it, hopefully it's the Bible. Yes. So whoever or whatever it is, I'm certain that your worldview is similar or has been significantly shaped by those influences in your life because we're all very highly impressionable. So the importance of influence, who are your main influencers in your life? Mm -hmm. And these are things we can choose, by the way, and they don't just happen upon us. These are choices we can make. You know, what are we going to read? What are we going to watch? Who are we going to be under the teaching of? What church are we going to go to? Who's going to be our pastor? These are important choices we need to make, and this cannot be overstated how important it is so that our influences are key in the formation of 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 our worldview. I mean, that point is so important, David. And and when you look at the people that come into your life and speak truth into your life or lead you away from truth, it's going to make a significant difference in in the way in which you're going to live out your life. 
It absolutely is. And yeah. so if you want to form a Christian or biblical worldview, it's about being under the influence, so to speak, of people in the Word of God that are consistent with Christ's worldview. I mean, after all, Christian worldview is like the worldview of Christ. So if you want to be more like Christ, if you want to think and live like he did, then you need to be under the influence of the Word of God and others it will always be limited in a certain way, but the ones that are most sound in what they believe and teach so that you can become more like your teachers in life. All right. David, let me take a little break. When we come back, I want to talk about some of the misconceptions of a, a Christian worldview. David Wheaton is my guest. I always recommend going over to his website, thechristianworldview.org. You can check out his amazing radio show. It's brilliant. Just so you know, I highly recommend it. We'll be right back. Let's get studying this summer, starting on June 29th, reading the Bible together. Let's explore what the Bible says about suffering, truth, and godliness as we read together through the book of 2 Timothy. Sign up for the two-week study now and get your free study guide at myfaithradio.com. So glad to be talking to my friend David Wheaton, and we are in our series of embracing a Christian worldview and the formation of a Christian worldview. Uh, We're in part six of our series, and David, I want to talk about some of the misconceptions. Like, let's start with this one. Does one need to be intelligent or intellectual to form a Christian worldview? Yeah, that's a very common misconception that it's somehow a Christian worldview is only for the smart people, the highly educated people, the intellectuals out there. You have to be Francis Schaeffer or something to, you know, to have a Christian worldview. And that's absolutely not the case. Uh, The Christian worldview is is uh, is is not just for the deep thinkers. Uh, You look at First Corinthians chapter one for the message of the cross or word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, there's lots of intelligent, there's lots of intellectuals in the world who are, what that verse says, they're foolish in God's eyes because they reject uh, the, the the Christian worldview. They they go. They have worldly wisdom, and that that's what this contrasts. There's a there's a wisdom of the world that's flawed and leads to death, spiritual death. But there's a wisdom of God that's accessible to anyone who is humble enough uh, to 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 read it and see it and believe it. And so the wisdom of the world comes from fallible unregenerate, God-rejecting men. There's so much of that in the world. Just read the major newspapers, the the cable TV shows. You hear all sorts of that kind of, quote, worldly wisdom. It's the word of man over the word of God. Now, they may be highly intelligent, highly intellectual. They may have earned multiple degrees. They may hold high positions of influence in society and academia. But make no mistake, the worldview they are teaching is, is not is their own wisdom. It's it's off base and it's actually in God's eyes foolish. Mm-hmm. So one can study and learn what the Christian worldview is. These people may even know what a Christian worldview is. They may know the facts about it, but it goes deeper than that. It's not just a head knowledge. It must descend down into the heart, the affections, the desire 
must be a surrendered will to the truth of Scripture. But there's another kind of wisdom that passage mentions, Bill, the wisdom of God that does not require intelligence or education. You know, Christ says, you must come to me like a child. You know, children don't necessarily have high intelligence or high intellectualism at, when they're very young. Uh, but this wisdom is defined as the skill of thinking and living as God intends. And this does not, you don't need to have high intelligence, a high IQ or intellectual to have that kind of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is synonymous with the Christian worldview. We have a little saying on our own program, we say, think biblically and live accordingly. Because anyone can think biblically if we read the word and humbly believe it and follow it through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have a Christian worldview. I, I love that, David. Um, and I, I sometimes, and you as well, know people whose pride is affecting their ability to, to seek God. At, uh, so they've got their own issues just with pride and conceit. Pride keeps us from understanding the things of God. Uh, because we prioritize and, and, and push up and boast about our own ideas and how smart we are and well, how much how learned we are. Yeah, uh, you're, you're getting further and further away from a Christian worldview. We need to dispense. It's not anti-intellectual, by the way, to have a Christian worldview. I'll make sure I say that too. You can be intelligent and have a Christian worldview, of course, because it's the truth. It matches what reality is. To the truth, truth is what how things really are. And the Christian worldview, more than any other worldview by far, explains the way things really are. But pride gets in the way because we think we know better. But when we submit to the authority of the truth of God's Word in our life, that's really the beginning of wisdom. Mm -hmm. David, here's another possible misconception uh, when you're forming a Christian worldview. Is that just about uh, accumulating information or, or facts? Exactly. That's another common misconception that if I just, you know, read all these apologetic books, uh, if I just, you know, read a lot of columns online, if I, if I go to the, the website gotquestions.org and memorize all 250,000 questions or whatever it is that have been mailed into them and I can recite it all out, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have a Christian worldview either. Yeah, you might, you might know the information again about the Christian worldview. It's the idea of, well, if I can just think a certain way. Well, it's not just thinking a certain way. Listen to what James says in his book, James chapter 2. We've all heard this. What use is it, brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no work? It's like saying, well, I have a Christian worldview, but there's no evidence of the Christian worldview that's being lived out in your life. Can that faith save him, he asks. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled— and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body. What use is that? Even so, faith, thinking a certain way or believing in certain things, if it has no works to give evidence to it, is dead, being by itself. And then it closes by saying, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And so, in other words, even the demons know facts. They know the facts about God. They probably know what a Christian worldview is very, very well. But the, again— there is no willingness to act on those facts to obey God. So there, there must be not only a thinking the right way with the Christian worldview, but it must descend down into us and affect our wills, our volition, our desires, and how we're going to live this out. Now, I want to be quick to say that forming a Christian worldview does take growth in knowledge. There are facts to know. We've been going over them for the past six weeks about different fundamentals and so forth and so on. So there is information to know. 
but it never ends just with the information. It is a, a practical outworking. The formation of a Christian worldview will result in what we're going to talk about a few weeks from now, the function of a worldview. Mm-hmm. The Christian worldview will have right thinking and it will also have right living. All right, David, let me ask you this. This one uh, is going to be a little bit more charged of a question, but does one's political views form a Christian <laughs> worldview? Yeah, I think that that's a, a really big misconception today that, you know, if you're conservative in one sense, well, you then you must have a Christian worldview. Or if you're liberal even, you 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 have a Christian worldview because you're more empathetic and compassionate. And, and this is something, you know, or being pro-life, or, or being for one man, one woman marriage, or yeah. free market economics, or limited government, or opportunity in life over guarantees, or national sovereignty over globalism. These things all make you have a Christian worldview. Well, that's just backwards, actually. A, a Christian worldview will lead to certain political policies, I believe. We won't get into all of that today, but that doesn't mean you have a Christian worldview. Um, same thing for the opposite. You know, you can Christianize liberal political viewpoints that the purpose of government is to create equity, or we need to tax the income producers and redistribute it to the needy. That's a typical liberal Christianized viewpoint. Or we need more greater funding for government-controlled education, government welfare, government health care, uh, or any other misrepresentation of Matthew chapter 5, where if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Christ was talking about believers helping fellow believers. So the, the, our political views do not shape our Christian worldview. Our political views should come from our Christian worldview, and I think this is where where we, you can easily get it wrong because politics is so right there in front of our face every single day. We see it in the news and these policies affect our life. But we need to remember that Christ is the source of the Christian worldview and he's the center of the Christian worldview. Yeah, so it's not, not formed by intelligence. It's not formed by gaining knowledge. And your Christian worldview is not formed by watching certain you know political cable news programs uh, during the day. It, it comes from understanding what Scripture teaches, and then surrendering to it and obeying it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to have to take this into the next time we we uh, have a show together, but because we're a little thin on time right now, but how how is a Christian worldview then formed? Exactly. So we've talked about the misconceptions, and we'll get into this one more next time. I'm just going to give the three points for, for listeners to think about. So if a Christian worldview is not formed by you know, you don't have to be intellectual or intelligent, and you don't have to be, you know, a great accumulator of facts, and it's not formed by your political beliefs. How is it formed? Well, it's really formed three ways. Number one, you must be saved. Number two, you must be in the process of being sanctified. And number three, you must be engaged. And I'll explain more about what that means next time we get together, Bill. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand who we are in Christ, because I've always said you can't know who you are in Christ. Or you can't know who you are until you know who you are in Christ. That, that's exactly right. And the you know back to one something we talked about very early on is that very few professing Christians actually have a Christian or biblical worldview. It's a shockingly low number. You, you do that through teaching um, the Bible verse by verse and covering everything it teaches, not selecting certain passages you like and avoiding others from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis right to the end in Revelation. Yeah. All right, David, thanks again. Always great to have you on the show. I look forward to our next time together. So do I, Bill. Thank you. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David. After a short break, Beverly Canaris is going to join the show. We're going to talk about the throne room of heaven in the New Testament. Be right back. 
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show if you just tuned in. Thank you to David Wheaton for that awesome discussion on a Christian worldview and embracing one, and we all need to do that. And now I'm so glad to have Beverly Canaris here in the studio with me. She is a, a past teacher of Bible Study Fellowship, did that for over 30 years. Now she loves to mentor and write and teach, and she also uh, has a podcast called She Is Becoming. We're all, awfully glad to have her back in the studio. Bev, welcome. Welcome to you, Bill. Thank, Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. Now, this topic we're going to talk about today the throne room of God in the New Testament. You've been thinking about this for a while. I have. In fact, last month when I was in, Bill, we talked about the talk about the throne and the visions of the throne in the Old Testament, and it's there too. Sometimes we think this is just a New Testament topic, but I do think that uh, the New Testament now, today we're going to talk about it in the New Testament. And this vision um, just tells us so much about God, so much about his plan for the world, uh, who, who he is, his power, his glory, his beauty. Um, I have just been thinking on it and thinking on it for probably a year. I love it. So we're going yeah. to talk about the pictures of the throne of God in the New Testament. Right. Don't you want to see that? I do. Are you curious? Oh, I'm curious. Ever. So this is, ever. spurs me on Tease here. me. Let me know. Yeah. Tell yeah. me. Yeah. Well, listen, a couple of years ago, we were, my husband and I were in France, and we were able to tour the Palace of Versailles, and in there you can see the throne room, and you also can see this hall of mirrors, just this extravagant um, chandeliers and mirrors everywhere. It's it's like nothing else really in the world. Uh, kings often made their throne rooms and the throne itself to represent, of course, their power of office and also their wealth. It oh. was a sign of who they were mm-hmm. in the kingdom. In Israel, King Solomon built a throne of epic proportions. Listen to this description in 1 Kings. Then the king, it was Solomon, made a great throne covered in ivory and overlaid with gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one on either side of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. Quite a picture there, isn't it? Mm, sure Think is. how you would feel coming, walking into his presence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little trembling? Yeah. A little trembling yeah. going on there? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, many countries still have throne rooms that you can go and visit. Almost all, though, now really are just kind of tourist attractions rather than any real seat of power. America doesn't have a throne room, but rather an what? An oval office is maybe somewhat compared, um, that symbolizes kind of the seat of power of the president. But in a democracy, a throne room would not be appropriate with the balance of power that our forefathers have set up for us. Now, in the Old Testament, there are many mentions of God's throne, as we did last time we were together. But God's throne was the place from which God rules with sovereign authority. It's described in, in the Bible in such a way as to be a literal place in God's heavenly kingdom. We see consistent pictures of this throne and the surrounding area in scriptures. Um, It's amazing to me 
how consistent this picture is seen by so many different eyewitnesses of the throne and even described by God himself. So today we're going to look in the New Testament and get a powerful look into the throne room there. Now, the New Testament reveals to us that the long-awaited Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come and in doing so fulfilled prophecy. When the angel announced to Mary, Jesus' mother, that she would give birth to a son, this is how this son is described in Luke 1. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. Here's the part we're focusing on. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. What this really means is David was given a promise that he would have an eternal um, heritage, an eternal perpetual reign of his family line. So what that God was really promising him was that the Messiah then would come from David's family, that there was going to be perpetual, and only Christ could have a perpetual reign because all other human kings, of course, die. Mm-hmm. So Jesus himself mentioned his throne when he was speaking to his disciples in Matthew 19. He said, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 25, Jesus said it again. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So there's a description of it, a glorious throne. All the people there at his glorious throne, he says after this in Matthew 25, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats at that throne, at the foot of that throne. Jesus also mentioned himself seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, He did this when he was talking to the Jewish ruling council when he was on trial. He said to them, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. So this really depicts Christ as co-regent, also on a throne, equal with God. And of course, the high priest at this point tears his robe because he says, that's blasphemy. You're equating yourself with God. And indeed, he was. Uh, Jesus was communicating his words that they may choose not to see him as a son of God who reigns with God the Father as one, but one day, all people are going to see Jesus on the throne, and have to give an account to him. Wow. Mm. Now, the book of Hebrews in the Bible compares Christ to all earthly authority, even above the heavenly authority of the angels. Christ reigns supreme to all. Hebrews also refers to Christ's throne in the first chapter. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So Jesus mentioned his throne several times. It's spoken of so often in the New Testament. But if you really want to find the throne mentioned many, many times, turn to the book of Revelation. And this is where that heavenly curtain is pulled away, and we really get to see a more detailed description of this heavenly throne and also learn how all this throne talk really applies to us. Why? Why? even talk about it. What's the big yeah. point? I think we feel a little distance from the idea of thrones, don't we? We do, because we live in America, yeah. and this whole idea of you know having a monarchy is foreign to us. Yeah, it is. It's very foreign to us, and um, I think we need to, at part of getting a higher view of God, and to really understand his glory, we need to understand this concept of a throne, mm-hmm. and what that throne represents. Um, Revelation 3.21 uh, 
it it's really beautiful. It asks Jesus here is talking to the church. He's writing to the Laodicea. And in it, this is what he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Now he's talking to other Christians here within the church. We're going to sit with Christ on the throne. I wonder how that looks. In my mind, I see everybody piling up on each other's lap. I highly (laughs) doubt that's really what it's really (laughs) saying. But I do know that scripture says, and we'll talk more about it, we do reign with him. And then it goes on to say, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So here Jesus is saying he not only has his own throne, he he sits on the father's throne. So you're going to see different images and different uh, ways of speaking about Christ's throne as him having his own throne, being next to God, and then sitting on God's throne one. So we know that, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are one and they do share this position of being on the throne. Also, Revelation 5, there's a scene here where there's a little scroll and nobody can open it. John, the apostle, is writing all this down. He's been taken up into heaven and and John is just distraught. So is all of heaven that no one can open this um, scroll. But then we read in Revelation 5, this happens. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then, this is John, I, John, saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Gee, who could that be? Standing in the middle of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders. Do you get the picture? Not only is he seated on the front throne, here he is actually standing in the middle of the throne, encircled by these fascinating creatures um, all around him. Then the elders and the creatures all fall down in worship when they see this lamb of God uh, standing in the middle of the throne. And then we go on and we can read about more about this throne in chapter 5, which is fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. It, Be- Beverly Canaris is my guest. If you just joined us, we're talking about the pictures of the throne of God in the New Testament. And so far, it's exciting um, to start putting these images in our head. Isn't it? Yeah, and reminding us of the majesty of Jesus and God in heaven. It is. And it's something mm. we're all going to see. So I find that very exciting. Um, I can't wait. Yeah. Um, it, it says here too in this throne room, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain with your blood. You purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. So we reign with God um, on earth when we have uh, received Christ. There are these promises of, again, reigning with him. Goes on to say, worthy is the lamb to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be praise, honor, glory, power forever and ever. So to say that Jesus is just a man apart from God really doesn't line up with what Scripture describes here, does it? No. No. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is in the midst of the throne. He is on the throne. He is beside the throne. Um, All the creatures are around him, worshiping him on the throne. So this really gives us a high view of picture of who God and Jesus Christ, his Son, really are and their interconnectivity in the Trinity union that they have together. 
Chapter 7, more highlights here. Um, (laughs) After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were singing their praises to God. Um, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne to the Lamb. And then he said, these are they who came out of the great tribulation, um, these worshipers in this particular scene. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So these saints who have been um, gone through the tribulation and have died are now in heaven and they are being cared for by God and they're in front of the throne worshiping. And it goes on to say in chapter 7, For the Lamb at the center of the throne, again, will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this being in the presence of God's throne is not scary. I think it is a place of great protection, of love, of being in his presence, that the joy would know no bounds. Then if we want to go over to Revelation chapter 12, 20, clear, clear towards the back of the Bible here. Uh, Another verse really describes this so well. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Books are open before the throne and the time of judgment has come. So we call this the great white throne judgment. This is where the two books are open. One is called the book of life. And if you have received Christ, your name is recorded in this book of life. If you have not, if you've rejected Christ, you are in a book. Your name is also in another book, but in there are the works of your life. And you will be judged according to the works of your life. And of course, no one can have a righteousness that is perfect No human being can. Only Christ did. And so if you're counting on your own righteousness, you will be in that book of works, and it will never be enough. And it says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's a very sobering picture as well in front of this throne. It's a very sobering uh, passage, because if your name is not written in the book of life, you will be thrown into the lake of fire, And Bev, let's just remind people how you end up with your name in the book of life. This is really a beautiful thing. Jesus Christ came into the world. He came into the world as God. He came into the world and he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and he now resides in heaven today. And he is the Messiah. He is Lord God. And when we put our faith in him, we can be, um, we get our names written in this book of life because, because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. The Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. And if we, um, if we don't have Christ covering and his blood took that punishment for sin, the punishment remains on us. But he took that punishment. It was death. And now we are freed to be his people, to live eternally with him in heaven. Mm. We'll take a little break. Beverly Canaris is my guest. We're talking today about the pictures of the throne of God in the New Testament. What beautiful imagery. We find this all in Scripture. So if you've missed any of it, you're going to want to go to the beginning. Check it out at MyFaithRadio.com. And if you've heard it from the beginning, don't go anywhere because we'll be right back.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. We are tuning today to the New Testament to get a really powerful look into the Throne Room of God with Beverly Canaris. Bev, this is uh, exciting stuff you're sharing with us. Isn't it fun? You know, when you start to put all these verses together, you really see some powerful truths about who God is, what our role is, um, what this throne really represents, and uh, just how special it really is that Uh, we have this view into heaven. Mm -hmm. I already got a nice text. I'm so excited. I love this discussion. I can't wait to see Jesus. Oh, I know. Oh, Ah, I know. Amen. Whoever said that, amen to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I want to finish as far as going through the scriptures, showing you where this uh, term, the throne room of God is. In Revelation uh, chapter 22 is really the final mention in the Bible of the throne. So let me just share part of this with you. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb. Okay. So this this throne room also has a river running through it. There's also a rainbow around it. There's these four living creatures around this throne. There's a green emerald sea in front of it. How spectacular is this going to be when we see it? I've seen drawings of mm-hmm. this, but um, this sounds amazing. Now we've got we've added a river. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So there is the final picture of this throne scene in the book of Revelation. I see really four biggie applications for us today, Bill. Okay. As we think through this vision of this throne of God and the Lamb of, of God, Jesus Christ, on the throne. And so I'm got, I've got four things here, big points that really stood out to me when I studied this topic. First of all, we got to ask ourselves, and I know this can be a trite question. You've heard it for years, perhaps. Who is on the throne of your life? But it's a great picture, especially when you put it in context of what we just seen, we've just seen here. How dare I put myself on the throne instead of the great, majestic, glorious Lord and his son, the Jesus Christ, who died so that I could have life eternal, so that my name could be written in that yeah. book of life. Um, but you know what? Human nature wants to rule. Why would you want to be your authority, though, when you have Jesus? Why would I? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Why would I? Why Why would you when you have God? I know. Mm-hmm. We want to do our own thing. We honestly, I think, sometimes think most of the time that we we know best. Yeah. We want our own little kingdom, our purpose, our wants, our priorities. We can give lip service to the Lord as our king, but we don't honor him or look to him. Christ being on the throne of our lives really means this, complete surrender to him. It means he's in charge. His will trumps yours. It will mean we willingly gather with God's people to serve and to worship him who sits on the throne. 
Colossians 3 tells us to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So that's the first big takeaway from this picture of this throne. Seated on a throne at the right hand of God, right? Yes. Yes. There's that throne image again. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. Second big application for us, takeaway. All of us are going to stand before this throne. According to Hebrews 10, it says, For we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, what this is really telling us, and the Bible tells us again and again, each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And that's why we are asking today, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, or will you be judged on works, your works, which saves no one from condemnation? We are judged on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness, not your own. Your own will not get you there. So this throne idea is a very sobering thought that, indeed, there is accounting in life. There will be justice. God's throne is a throne of justice. Third big takeaway, in Christ's future kingdom, those who are believers in Christ and his death on our behalf will pass from judgment to eternal life, and scripture says that we will reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.2 challenges us, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelations 26, blessed are the holy ones, those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Talking about the millennial kingdom here. Mm -hmm. Believers are called the bride of Christ, and we will be so joined to Christ that he is like a husband who considerately lets us rule the kingdom with him as our head and our leader. That doesn't, Christ doesn't give up the leadership when we reign with him. He's like a husband to us in that wives are to submit to their husbands and then together you have this home that is cooperating and a beautiful picture of what it is with Christ and his bride. So that's the third big takeaway from this, that we're gonna reign with Christ. And then the fourth and my personal favorite, Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, some versions say boldly, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Bill, do you hear what this is? This is an open invitation to come to God as our advocate and as our father and our friend. We are invited to come directly to him Our only intermediary is Christ, so we pray in Jesus' name. God's throne is called a throne of grace. It is not a throne that is cold, unconcerned, or easily angered. This throne of grace demonstrates God's love for his undeserving children. Grace just means unmerited favor. The only reason we may like this, the only reason that we can come like this is because of him, and his graciousness and love. We cannot come on our own merit. Our God sits on his throne and listens to our pleas. Nothing's too small, Bill. Nothing's too big for him. God will not reject us, but like King Xerxes, 
who granted Queen Esther into his presence. So God touches his scepter and allows us to make requests before his eternal throne. We are safe before him as his children. We are safe. He is always available to us. We can come with respect, do him, but we can come. God will answer in his way and his time, true. And you can trust him. We're also told to come boldly to his throne. We can come with great assurance, with great faith that our father hears us and he cares for us. This is one of the greatest privileges of our lives. Bill, do you remember this iconic picture of President Kennedy sitting at the um, in the Oval Office at his desk and John Jr., his little four-year-old son, is playing at his feet? Mm-hmm. I do. It's that's, a powerful image. That's a picture of us. Yeah, yeah. There also- we are on the throne, mm-hmm. and we're playing at the Lord's feet. We are there living our life at his feet, this powerful, all-powerful God. Yeah. We're, that's us. I also love the image that John John could run through the White House, fly past Secret Service, fly into the Oval Office and jump into his dad's lap. Yeah. And nobody tried to stop him. No. <laughs> and that's us. Yeah, that, that's completely us. I picture myself often grabbing him by the ankles yeah. at the foot of his throne. Yeah, I love that image. Making my pleas. I like that. Beverly Canaris, thank you so much for this teaching today on pictures of the throne of God in the New Testament. It's been wonderful and always good to see you. Thanks, Bill. You bet. We're going to take a little break when we come back. Veteran Vince Miller. I don't know why I call him that because he's been on the show more than once. And we're going to talk about Ephesians 5. Not living by the flesh, but walking in the spirit. That's next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.